Well, good morning, everybody. How are you today? That was weak. Good morning. How are we doing today? That is awesome. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Today, we are talking about parenting. Can't we all just get along? Now, I want to make a comment I forgot to make last week. For those of you who are single, not yet married, maybe, or some of you are too young to be married, even though some of you are in love. (laughs) Whatever way or place you find yourself today, this passage is still applicable to us. This practical section in Colossians chapter 3 isn't just for married people with parents. And I realize when we go into this section uh, that some of you may want to have the tendency to check out. And so I want to just again remind you, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're divorced or married or single, with or without kids, God's Word doesn't come back void. And in fact, what we see are some principles here on relationships that are helpful across the spectrum. And if you remember where we left off last week, we dealt with marriage, husbands and wives. And in this practical section, Paul is essentially saying someone is in submission to someone. Everybody has someone they report to, someone that they are in submission or need to respect. And in fact, next week, we will look at that relationship in the workplace. And I do plan on interviewing Bill because I'm going to find out a theology of work. And if you don't know what that, why that's funny, talk to Bill Heatley because that's kind of his area of expertise. But after looking to marriage, he goes to the next logical place to provide application about mutual submission, and it's in the home between parents and kids. Now, if you are tracking with me as as we get started, our culture presents families very, very differently on the television. I have now, uh, I've tried to do my best, starting with Leave it to Beaver to give you a history of the family via TV. So I want you to look at these slides, and in your, in your mind's eye, because there will be a quiz afterwards, what was the big idea? And I won't have time to do it with every show, but each of these had a little different emphasis, and you're going to see the progression of how family has been presented in American culture over the last 40-plus years. This was the first TV show I remember seeing regularly. There was another one before it called Father Knows Best, but for most of you, that would be really ancient history, so I'm trying to bridge the gap here only over the last 40 years. So we started with Leave it to Beaver, and the, the amazing thing about Ward Cleaver was what? What did he do for work? He had the nice cardigan, he did what? Nothing, apparently. It was, it's my kind of job. I wish I could have found it. Then we move on, and these aren't necessarily in when they happened in history, but when they happened on the TV. So then you had the Brady Bunch. What was unique about them? On TV, the first what? The first blended family. Then we get to Little House on the Prairie, that, hor- that, that, that heartwarming place where those of you who grew up in Minnesota or the Midwest could say, now that was the real family. And Michael Landon always seemed to say the right thing. And uh, Laura Wild Ingalls uh, had kind of a, uh, Laura Wilder Ingalls always uh, had interesting takes on, on uh, things in life. Then we move on to this next family, Happy Days. How about that one? We uh, 
remember the Fonz and Richie Cunningham, uh, the all-American family. But the all-American family did get into trouble from time to time, and we laughed our way through that one. Then we move on to one that some of you remember, Family Ties with Michael Keaton. And this is the one where I think we began to realize kids are getting smarter in these shows, and they had a response. And maybe trickery was part of uh, the family dynamic, but it was still done in a fun way. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see Michael Keaton today on The Good Wife as a, uh, using his Parkinson's still even in acting. Then um, uh, we got to The Cosby Show, all right? Landmark series, and some of you remember. Now, I just want to show you that for some of you, these fun TV shows are really like ancient texts for many in the room. If you do not remember ever seeing the show, just raise your hand and you'll see that there will be a few that have no idea what we're talking about, including some college students in the back. All right. Then next, uh, after the Cosbys, we had Full House. And once again, John Stamos still looks like he's that age, whether he plays with the with the Beach Boys or not, and uh, I won't comment about Full House, but again, an interesting show. And then we got to one that uh, has unfortunately dominated the landscape of our TV screens for years and just will not go away. Uh, But Homer Simpson has now made it into the lexicon of culture lexicography with the words, there we go. And then besides that, we had uh, next in line was absolutely one of my favorites, Home Improvement. And Tim Allen uh, did his thing, and I always wondered what Wilson really looks like. If you know that show, he was always behind the fence, never saw his face completely. And then after that, Seventh Heaven. It didn't have a long series, but it introduced the world to Jessica Biel, and that launched her Uh, in her movie career after that. And then the one that is uh, one that is one of my favorites today, we have the what? All right, and don't you wish you had some of those powers today yourself? And then finally, uh, the one that has taken our, our culture by storm in the last three seasons, Modern Family, and of course has redefined the family And this is not a commentary about that, but I'll leave it unsaid. But that's one where parents, you need to talk about what is family as it relates to this show because it has major cultural implications for us today. With that in mind, we now look at the text because all those images of culture give us one view of the family, but Colossians chapter 3 gives us another. And as is our custom, would you stand with me? It's only two verses I want to read to you from Colossians chapter 3, where we continue in verses 20 and 21. And it says this, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You may be seated. Now, most of you who are uh, students of the Word know that Colossians 3 needs to be uh, taught in in context along with Ephesians chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 4. So write that passage, and that parallels this passage. There's a couple nuances in Ephesians that we won't be looking at today, but you would want to compare the two texts. Now, just like last week, what is the culture that Paul's writing in? If you think about it, Roman culture was not a good place for kids. Students in the front section here, if you think your parents are tyrants today, this is one of those prayers today where you go, thank goodness I was not born in Roman times. Let me give you just a couple of highlights. The Romans had the law of the father or the father's power, patria protestis. And here's what they could do uh, to their children. They could sell their children into slavery. They could make them do hard labor. So far they're going, so what's different? Um, This is what's different. They could condemn a child to death and even carry out the execution themselves. Children were under the domination of parents. And although a Roman law allowed the father to demand obedience, he could have demanded even of his adult children. In fact, the idea of a college or young adult kind of... uh, having any freedom was, was, not, was suspect in Roman law. In fact, adults no longer living with their parents were normally expected only to honor their parents. And again, I'll give you the same refrain I gave you last week. All the privileges and rights belong to the parent, and all the duties belong to the children. And so again, if you look, this what Paul's about to say is revolutionary because he balances the scales between parents and kids. And once, once again provides this idea that there's something more uh, to the family than these dogmatic Roman laws. He again starts with children first, then he'll go to dads, and I'll explain why he talks about dads and not moms in just a moment. Principle number one, children says this in verse 20, obedient children please God. That's what the Scripture says. For this pleases the Lord. Now, what is God's will for our kids, for our students, for our children? It's very simply, obey your parents. Now, some of you are quick to bring up, but what happens if they ask me to do something that's unethical, illegal, or immoral? That's your out clause, students. Uh, That's when you say, we need to talk about this. Same as last week when we talked about a wives in submission to their husbands. But that word obey, it's from the same Greek word as last week. We talked about submission, getting under. But the idea here is it's an absolute command. It's listen to your parents or really listen to your parents. It implies this readiness level to listen and carry out parental instructions. And there's an idea of this heartfelt attitude. Now, at about this point, the wise students sitting in this front section are already looking at their Bibles via their Bible or iPhone, taking notes, as I noticed, and they're saying, aha, Pastor Irwin, this says children. We are no longer children. We, we are much older, wiser than the children that he's referring to. I would love to say this only applies to 10-year-olds and younger, but I can't get there because the word for children is techna, all right? Techna, and it means youths in contrast to babies and toddlers. Most commentators believe that this is uh, referring to anybody still living at home. So those of you who are 40-year-old slackers, get out of the house. (laughs) Get out of the house or this applies to you. In fact, as I've studied the New Testament, do you know this? It is the 
only commandment given directly to you guys in the New Testament. It's just this one commandment. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, high school students, junior high students, obey your parents. Now, we know, all kidding aside, that for some of you, as I talk about this, it's not that funny. Some of you have grown up in abusive situations. Some of you as adults are now reflecting back about a horrific childhood. And clearly, God understands the pain of growing up in a home where clearly God wasn't honored and where there was physical, sexual, emotional, verbal abuse. That's not what we're talking about here. If you are in that situation today, you need to get help. You need to talk to someone. I, uh, as you know, I did quite a bit of speaking over the last seven years in public high schools, and a high school girl in Orange County came up to me after one of my presentations and was super depressed. And at the crux of that depression was the abuse she was receiving from her brother in their home. If you're living in a situation that your life is threatened in those ways, clearly we are talking about something other than what this Scripture is referring to. Now, it says, for this, this is the only command in the New Testament to teenagers, and number two, Paul is quoting from a Colossians 3 from an Old Testament passage. Remember it? From a, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, on the screen there, honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord has given you. Now, it's very interesting. Colossians 3, he doesn't give you the benefit of obeying. It says, if you obey, you get to live. It's such a concept. You go, what? Yeah, your days will be longer if you listen to your folks. And we'll explain that in a moment. In Ephesians 6, he does talk about that. But he, remember the other scriptures that talk about uh, kids in relationship to parents. Proverbs 1.8, it's not on the screen, but just listen with me. Hear, my son, your father's instructions and do not forsake your mother's teachings. Proverbs 23.22, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. So this idea of obedience and submission and honor all gets wrapped up together. Now, so often where we go south in, the, in, in families is when there's a confrontation, true? You know, dad has to bring something to you and you've got to respond and you're a little nervous because you're trying not to, you're trying to tell the truth, the whole truth, but not all the truth. You ever done that? You tell them just enough to keep them off your back. Now, the hair is big. It's the 80s. Uh, I realize that, but this little four-minute clip shows all the evasive maneuvers I could ever see a high school student employing when quizzed where they were when they weren't supposed to be where they were supposed to be. It's called After the Party, and I think you'll see that uh, this kind of sets us up uh, to d discuss how this could go south very, very quickly. You went to a party last night, and it looks like you're in the clear. But now your father wants to talk to you. Samantha. The first rule for getting along with your parents is that you must only admit what they already know. Samantha. So your first task in this encounter is to find out how much information he has. Samantha. Sorry, Dad, I didn't hear you calling at first. Listen, I want to ask you about where you were last night. 
What do you mean? Well, you agreed you were going to be at Kristen's, Ryan. Well, that's right, Dad. What's the problem? Well, I drove by Kristen's and your car wasn't there. Once you know more or less where you stand, you have to make a quick decision. Do you hold your ground with a bluff or do you try a diversion? In this case, start with the bluff. Gosh, Dad, I didn't know you meant I could only go to Kristen's. Do you want some more orange juice? Wait, 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 wait a minute, Samantha. You said, Dad, I just want to go to Kristen's. I'll just be five minutes, and if you got a problem and you can't get a babysitter for Sean, then I'll, I'll come right back. You remember that? Does that ring any bells, honey? Okay, so the bluff didn't work. Go for the diversion, but don't give away too much. Well, when I didn't hear from you, I assumed that everything was under control, so we went out for a few minutes. Well, I drove back by Kristen's, and your car still wasn't there. Now you're in a delicate spot. He knows more than you thought he knew, but you're still not sure how much he knows. Double back. Maybe you can confuse him. Well, everything worked out, right? You got the sitter, and you got to see your movie. So, oh, so how was the movie? Should I see I it? I don't want to talk about the movie. I want to talk about where you were last night. Hey, no sweat. You've already set this up. Well, it's like I said, Dad. When you didn't call, I assumed everything was fine. So we went to rent a movie. No big deal. Now listen, at about 7.30, went to a movie. Went by Kristen's car, wasn't there. Movie was all sold out, so at 7.45, drove back again, and your car still wasn't there. Went to the second showing, about 5 of 9, your car wasn't there. Went by Kristen's after the movie was over, 11 o'clock. Both times went by Kristen's car, was still not there. Where were you? Just because you didn't see my car, Dad, doesn't mean I wasn't there. Wait, wait, wait a minute. If you're telling me that you loaned your car to somebody else, then we got another problem here. Oops. Better try something a little more drastic. No, I didn't loan my car to anyone. Do you think I'd break our agreement like that? And what were you doing driving by Kristen's all night anyway? Don't you trust me? Why not? It's worked in the past. There's no reason it shouldn't work now, right? The problem is I trusted you, and you let me down. Did he say trusted? You're in trouble, kiddo. It's time to go for broke. Okay, Dad. I didn't want to tell you this, but you leave me no choice. I did leave Kristen's last night to go with Shelby to get her books. I know, I know how uncomfortable you are with Shelby, Dad, but she has been sober for almost three weeks, and she's really struggling with school and stuff, and I just thought that if I could give up some of my Friday night to tutor her, that it would make a difference. I don't know, Dad. I just try to do the right thing, and it gets so confusing. I'm sorry that I disappointed you. Excuse me. Hey, honey. Listen, I know it's difficult. I'm sorry I came down on you so hard, but let's, let's try to be a little clearer next time, okay? It's okay, Daddy. Good communication is hard in a dysfunctional family like ours. Now that wasn't so hard, was it? I am sure that has never happened in your home. How do you get there from here? Diversions and stories and sensitivity and the guy got worked for sure. Yeah. We have model, model children there. All right. Now, the question I want to ask you then is, under what conditions should students obey? It says, in everything. That was the tough one for most of us. In everything? In everything? Not just when the following things are true. Not just when it's convenient, all right? Not just when it's convenient. Um, 
there will be times when you will not like the decisions of your parents. All of us grew up with those situations where there was a decision made and we didn't quite like it, didn't understand it until we got a little older or had more perspective. Number two, we're supposed to obey parents even when they're not godly and acting like a Christian. Guess what? Some of you grew up in homes where Jesus Christ was not honored. That does not remove the command that your dad or your mom is still the person in your life that God is using as His instrument to bring instruction to your life. God can even use a non-believing parent to shape your character. Now, just to put this into perspective, how many of you who are now married and have your own kids, raise your hands if you grew up in a home where your folks did not know the Lord? Raise your hands. Now, look around. Look around. Look all Keep them high. A lot of you. And look, look you say, look at them. They, they, they came out all right, didn't they? You know, one of the things that I think happens is that when we are engaging with parents, one of those common ground experiences as a church that we need to be really connecting is parenting is tough, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. And whether you're on that soccer field or at back-to-school night, that is a great time for you to connect parents with other parents. Then thirdly, you still obey them even when it doesn't make sense to you. All right? Now, it makes perfectly sense for this kid to be coloring on the wall, but he maybe not quite understanding that that's not appropriate. As, the, as we get older, as we think through life, God oftentimes will use parental authority to protect us from an experience. Or they have wisdom to bring that when you're 16, you just go, are you sure? Do you really understand that? Uh, when you want to date a non-believer and your dad says, ladies, no, this, or gentlemen, either way, uh, no, that, we're not doing that. But he really likes me. And he says, doubly, no, no, no. Um, for some of you, it's your choice of friends. You go, but come on, dad, lighten up. And I'm picking on dad because I know my experience. And there is, by the way, I'll admit to you right now, there was a bit of a double standard between my daughter and my son. My daughter was the firstborn. Poor thing. She was firstborn and she was a girl. She was the snowplow of our family. Everything was tried out on her. We were stricter with her. We were tougher with her. We held her accountable. Um, and that's, by the way, the advantage of large families. By the time you get to four, five, or six, they don't even remember your name. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they, of course they know your name. But the bottom line is the larger family, parents typically lighten up a little bit. My son was born two and a half years after my daughter, and she, we reflect and laugh about how even in two and a half years, we changed in terms of our, our approach to parenting with him, mainly for survival reasons, <clears throat> which, which I'll talk about later. Um, your, your parents give, give you wisdom that at times many of us said at the time we didn't appreciate, but now looking back, wish we could have them to talk to again about those situations. Now, why should kids obey? This is what's in that little two-sentence thing. He gives you a reason why. Because he says, for this is pleasing to the Lord. In Ephesians 6, he also adds also, so that your days may be long in the land. So there's at least two good reasons to, to listen to your folks, because this pleases the Lord. 
In fact, we know this, true children are disciplined by their fathers, Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 8. And if we are inconsistent in our dealings with you, we run into problems. And then a principle that I know to be true, learn it now or learn it later. Learn it now or learn it later. So often, the lessons you're learning in the home are the same lessons you're going to learn in life. Some of you learned that when you got out of the house early, when you're 18, decided to go join the Army or Navy or the Marine Corps, or you decided to move halfway across the country and venture out on your own, and you realized that sharing rent and paying for utilities and food and all that was a lot more expensive. And so this idea of authority is something that we constantly are going to deal with in our life. Guess what? There are people in your life that are total jerks to you. There are people in your life who will be your employer and they will do things and you say, they are clueless. We should be doing it this way. And there are times that you're going to learn how to talk to someone that you disagree with. There's going to be times where you have to deal with people who are not kind. Now, I hope that all those things are not true of your parents, but give them a break because the bottom line is no parent is perfect and no kid is perfect. And so often we get into this text and we just feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel regret. We go back and go, oh, I wish I could have done it this way. Here's my advice to you parents that may have messed it up somewhere along the way, because we all have. Give yourself a break. Isn't it great that the God we serve, there are two words that describe His approach to us, grace and mercy. Grace, getting something you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting something you do deserve. And if I, could, if I could do a do-over in my parenting, I would have extended grace and mercy more liberally to my kids. I would have said yes more. I would have listened without interrupting. I would have gotten the whole story and not jumped to a conclusion. I would have prayed more and lectured less. And that's just the first half of the things that I've learned as a parent. I got a 28-year-old and a 25-year-old. One's married, one's not. The one who's not is a boy. We are taking applications. We're hoping that many godly women <laughs> would apply. So why should kids obey? Because it pleases the Lord and your life will you'll live longer. You'll live longer. Now, true to form, he takes it and now goes to fathers. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. <laughs> I don't know who you're connected with. Are they here? Okay. Godly parents, here's the principle. Godly parents don't exasperate their kids. Exasperate, not exacerbate. And actually, if you exasperate your kids, you will exacerbate the situation. That's for the English majors, all right? Do not provoke them. Don't be so quick, dads. You can say, yeah, see, kids got to do this, they got to do this. No, time out. But for us as parents, there's a warning. NIV says, don't embitter them, don't provoke them. It's the idea of habitually nagging them or deriding them or putting them down. And we'll look at a, 
uh, a few examples of this in the moment. Now, the obvious question, if you're studying the text, is who's not being addressed in this section? Moms! Moms, why do you get a free pass in this? Why are the dads getting singled out? I want to suggest, I've studied this, I've thought about this. I was looking to see if there was another Greek translation that said, y'all, y'all, like in Texas, that meant moms and dads, but it's only addressed to dads. So dads, listen up. I think there are three reasons. Number one, or maybe four reasons. Number one, moms ultimately uh, take a lot of responsibility in rearing the children. They're the ones who are around the kids all day. And so, dads, we're not very good at being tolerant and patient. And in fact, practically speaking, moms raise kids. Now, we don't like it. And dads in the last 30 years have gotten much more intentional about being involved with their children and not just working, you know, umpteen hours a day. Number two, I think he addresses us because our role as leaders, often men, we're just not as nurturing as women are. We tend to bark orders. We give ultimatums. We're, we're, we're less tolerant. Now, some of you have wonderful, patient fathers. God bless you. You should thank them every day. A lot of men aren't wired that way. Number three, dads have a tendency to overreact and not listen. In fact, Cheryl did wonderful, helped me be a much better father. Did you not? This is, she's laughing, but it is so true. If something went down that I'm going to have to deal with when I got home, this is exactly how it went. She didn't call me early day to ruin my whole day. She waited. It was a, by the way, it was about a 25-minute commute from Edina at Eden Prairie where I lived. She called about the time she thought I would be leaving the office. She would tell me what happened. I had 25 minutes to think about it. Now, here's what changed over the years is cell phones. It was much better when she just told me it, I hung up, and then I was sitting alone in the car talking to people randomly as I was frustrated, I was mad, and I could process almost anything in about 25 minutes, and so by the time I got home, I wasn't ready to strangle my, my son or my daughter, but usually it was my son. I told you there were some differences there. And so she prepared me emotionally to not lose it, to be ready for the bad news, to have thought through what I was going to say. Now, God bless some of you. I'm actually going to come down away from here because I know you're out there. Those dads who are by nature just easygoing, thoughtful, reflective people who are balanced and emotionally well-adjusted, I hate you. No, I mean, it's just not fair. How did God wire you like that? You're just like, whoa. You are steady. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We all, we don't get a free pass on that. Dads, we got to work on this stuff. But you can tell that as I even preach, I think about, man, if I could have had those words back, if I could have said it just a little differently, I could have not provoked this thing. And so I want to give you, and this may be self-biography, or I'll let you own some of these yourself. In David Letterman's style, we are going to talk about the top 10 ways that we exasperate our children. Now, some of you are going, why, why, why do I need a drummer? Well, if you've never watched Letterman, get ready, because here's our top 10 ways we exasperate and provoke our kids. 
Number 10, repetitive nagging. Repetitive nagging. Some of you, some of you are like that. You know what nagging is like? It's like being nibbled to death by a duck. All right? Nagging. All right. Number two. Controlling behavior, controlling behavior. This idea that you don't give any freedom, you're overly strict, it's always a no, and you've got to earn this. Now, we do know that freedom comes from being responsible. Number three, unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. You see, for some of you, it's only perfection. That's the only standard. And in fact, we're overcritical of our kids' behavior. Number four, unfair comparisons. Unfair comparisons. Now, when you compare your kids, you're, that's a recipe for disaster. I see many of you, you know, nodding your head. I can tell you, one's going to be academic, one's going to be athletic, and one's going to just we just pray we find out what he is and what he wants, right? We got one who is very relational, one's quiet. You know, for one, disciplining them and, and the, the quiet timeout was perfect. They're introverts. They go read a book. They love that. You know, the extrovert, the timeout's, you know, a punishment worse, worse than death. And so think about how favoritism, and I don't have time to unpack it, just think Jacob, 12 kids, how he treated Joseph and all the sibling rivalry because of personal favoritism showed to one child. My, my sister and I, very similar, my, well, very different. She was born eight years before I was. She was the model child. This, she was a tough act. Some of you are going, yep, that's me, that's me. Yeah, they're all going, yeah, that's me, right? She was just the model child. She, you know, here's how they disciplined my sister. I am not exaggerating. I think they maybe spanked her twice in her entire life, all right? This is how they disciplined her. <sighs> Patty, we're, we're very disappointed in your behavior. And here's, she would cave on behavior. <laughs> She'd start crying, I'm so sorry, Daddy. Now, here's how they did it with me. Johnny. We're very disappointed in your behavior. And I looked him right now. I said, well, you might want to deal with it. <laughs> I'm telling you, the Board of Education met the seat of my understanding often. And when they say grab your ankles, you need to actually grab your ankles. Do not lift your leg up and grab That didn't fly. All right, number 10, 9, 8, 7, this is number 6. Punishing them in anger. Punishing them. Now, we can laugh about this, but it's no laughing matter. When you discipline and you're out of control and you're angry, it's often worse than their original offense because you've lost the moral high ground when you discipline in anger. I remember the time that my son decided that he wasn't going to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. It went down like this. It was 10 o'clock on a Saturday night 
in August in Minnesota. The sun barely sets at that time. Every kid is playing in the neighborhood. It's an idyllic scene. People are drinking their lemonades. They're visiting in the front lawns, and kids are playing. We say, John Daniel, it's time to come home. He says, yes, Dad. First clue that I knew something should have been up. He said, yes, Dad, I'm coming. So he came home, and our, our routine was take your bath, etc. After he played with his G.I. Joes in the bathtub, we had our nighttime prayers, and um, we get done praying, and John Daniel says these words, hey, Dad, has anybody take Molly out to go to the bathroom? Molly was our little cockapoo dog. And I'm thinking, what a nice kid, remembering about Molly, that he'd like to take the dog out to go to the bathroom. I said, this is wonderful. So I go to bed and say, thanks, John. And so I go to bed, we're laying in bed, Cheryl and I are talking, and Cheryl says, did John Daniel come back in? I said, oh yeah, she, he just took Molly out, I'm sure he's, he's back in bed. And then Mama knows, she goes, would you check on him? I said, why would we need to check on him? She looks at me with that look like, you know why we need to check on him. And so then we argued about who would check on him, we played rock, paper, scissors, I lost. And I went to go check on him. So I go down the hallway to check on him. Now the funny thing is, side comment, as I'm going to check on him, after arguing on who's going to check on him, she's right on my backside here. <laughs> and we're both going to check on him, right? So we, we both went to check on him. I go to look in there, and I, and I open the door like this, and I see that he's sound asleep in his bed, that you can see the form of his body in his bed. I go, look, he's sound asleep. She goes, He's not asleep. She throws up the door. She flips on the light. He had taken his pillows and put them in his bed. His football helmet was on his pillow, covered up over his well, He had made it look good. <laughs> now, there's an Old Testament Hebrew phrase that described my behavior the next point. It says in some book, the book of Erwiniski, it says, And yea, thus verily, daddy was ticked. And so, I admit to you, I admit to you, this was not appropriate. It was probably embarrassing to more than just my wife, and I made a spectacle of myself. I got out on the front porch, I said, John Daniel! You better get your little fanny home this very second! Now, Cheryl, a godly wife, is trying to pull me back into the house. Now, older sister Katie, who's now almost 13, has come downstairs going, this is going to be good. <laughs> if she had a cell phone, she'd be taking bets on how long the kid would live, right? Now, I'm sure none of you have ever, ever lost your temper. You've never lost it when your kid has lied to you or deceived you. And I gave him 10 seconds, and I'm counting down, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... About three, he goes, I'm coming, Dad. I said, I don't care. And he comes sliding in at one. Now, I'll leave it at that because it's a boring story, but he did survive that night. He got four hours of weeding out in the front yard on the following Monday. But we talked about deception and dishonor, and I wasn't very patient. And if I could have done that over, I would have been much more calm, like my wife was. In fact, at one point, I'm, about, I'm thinking I'm going to spank him, and she's whispering, do not discipline him in anger. <laughs> You're going to regret it. 
don't spank him. And I'm going, I don't want to spank him. I want to strangle him, you know? And then she was right, and I'm, I'm like starting to not hyperventilate. And I kid you not, I said, he goes, I guess I'm going to get a spanking. And I go, oh, John, we have something far worse than a spanking for you. <laughs> and then his eyes got big, and he's 10 years old, and he did this very thing. He goes, he looks at his mom, and he goes, Mom, make him spank me now, and he bends over. <laughs> Punishing our kids in anger. We've probably all done it at some point. Number five. Guilt trips. Guilt trips. We, make, we manipulate people. We make them feel bad. We kind of hound them. Kind of pa pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Number four. Constantly being irritable or grouchy. And don't do this. Don't blame, I'm just not an early morning person. You're not a night person either, apparently, and you maybe only have a couple of good hours in the whole middle of the day. Uh, don't be irritable and grouchy. Don't blame your personality for your parental uh, misgivings, all right? Number three, being inconsistent, being inconsistent. So often when we're hypocritical, it sends the wrong message, doesn't it? Number two, <laughs> not keeping promises, not keeping promises, not, don't overpromise and underdeliver, being late all the time, missing sporting events, etc. And then number one, <laughs> neglect, neglect. James Dobson said this chilling fact over 30 years ago, and I think it's still true today. 37 seconds a day the average father spends with his pre preschool age kid. You say, how could that be? How could you not want to hug him and kiss him and hold him? You see, the classic example of neglect we see as kids get older was David and Absalom. Look at what happened because of what happened in that family dynamic with Absalom and David because of David's indifference, his lack of discipline, the results in rebellion, a civil war, and ultimately Absalom's death. Now, I don't know if you wrote any of those down, but I'd like you to take, parents, just one of those. Say, just one of those are ones that, that you could work on today. So what happens if we continually provoke our kids? New American Standard says that they may not lose heart. When we provoke our kids too often, your kids lose heart. I like the way the NIV says it. Not only do they lose heart, it says they'll become discouraged. This word to be disheartened, dispirited, broken in spirit. Ken Hughes, who's a preacher in Wheaton, Illinois, talks about the way you break a horse. And he talks about the progressive method or the punishing method. He says when you break a horse using the progressive method, you use a halter and a bridle and a bit and a blanket and a saddle and a rider, and it takes a lot of time but gradually the horse trusts you. If you want to do the punishment method, it, it works much more quickly. But you, you take a two-by-four and you knock the horse to its knees, you tame the horse, but it's a terrible price. And in fact, so many parents want to tame their kids instead of lovingly discipline their kids. See, kids can play the game. They can be outwardly compliant. They can say all the right things. 
and they're just waiting, just waiting for that chance to be free of you and get out from underneath your roof. John Newton, the famous songwriter, said it this way, I know my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to ever see it. What a travesty. One of the greatest hymn writers, a former slave trader. My father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to ever see it. The sobering conclusion in this passage is why I believe that everybody in this audience needed to hear this message. And what I, I say, what we're talking about here as we conclude is our relationship to our Heavenly Father. Now, you've heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating again. Rules without relationship equal rebellion. If, in fact, you want to drive your kids away from you, be all about the rules, not about the relationship. And we've talked in our parenting class, we talked about the other isn't as good, that's no good either. All relationship and no rules is anarchy. And what you want is relationship plus rules, which equals respect. I've told you some things I wish I would do differently. Besides trying to say yes, I try to give my kids a few more reasons about what I was thinking instead of asking them, what were you thinking? I'd tell them what I was thinking. And then to kids, I'd just say to you today, regardless of whether you've got a great relationship with your folks or not, just cut them some slack. Give them a break. For most of my life, I had no idea the stress my folks were under. And the second principle is what I call the father-God connection. You see, most of us at some level have our perception of who God is based on our experience with our earthly father. And so it informs or causes us to have this view of our heavenly father that's often skewed. If you were in an abusive, controlling, demeaning relationship with your earthly father, ladies, it's affected your ability to trust God, your heavenly father. And in fact, some of you were in such messed up situations, it's affected your marriages. It's affected our marriage because of what my wife had to endure in her home. Parents got divorced when she was three, and, and her dad wasn't the best of parents, to say the least. But ultimately, we have to become overcomers. We have to realize that our relationship with our earthly father is here. But we have a heavenly father who is so much more in tune with the pain and might be the only one that understands some of that hurt, that dysfunction, that whatever. Now, those of you who are more kind of what I would call parents who are in the, you know, the garden variety parent, some of you today are feeling guilty because I did like seven out of those ten things. And, and though we laughed, you go, oh, man, I wish I could have a do-over. You know, there's no real do-overs in life, but there is this one thought I'll leave you with. Ultimately, parents, your kids are far more resilient than you give them credit for. I can't tell you the number of times I had to go to my kids and I would kneel down because I had messed up. And I look them in the eyes and I say, Honey, I'm sorry. The way dad behaved is not the way a Christian father should behave.
I said that to you in anger, and I was wrong. Would you forgive me? And what I tried to model for my kids was that we all need mercy and grace in our lives. And some of you have been waiting for that hug from a father or a mother that will never be there. We have counselors in our audience, psychologists and marriage counselors, and, and they will attest to the fact that when a couple comes in, the problem is not usually the problem. It's a presenting issue, and there's so much other things that they're unpacking. I learned the power of the words, I love you, when I was 16. My dad was working in Phoenix, Arizona, because that's how you made a living in the mid-70s when you couldn't get a job in Southern California, and he was working in Phoenix, and I'd see him once every about six weeks. It was the summer of 1973. I was in the weight room at Covina High School and working out with the football team. And I got word from Coach to go home immediately, and I said, what's up, Coach? He goes, your dad's had a massive heart attack. You're getting on a plane in about two hours, and your mom's waiting for you. We'll see you when you get back. And I'll never forget what it was like to walk into that hospital room with my dad filled with tubes coming out of his nose and hooked up to all those electrodes and thinking, I wonder if he'll recover consciousness. I wonder if I'll ever talk to my father again. And I remember thinking to myself, I got to get out of here. And my mom was sitting by his bedside and I went outside and it had to be 110 degrees that July 3rd day. As I was sitting out on this kind of fence outside the hospital, I had this predominant thought. And I think it was Holy Spirit produced. I was a believer. I was a, I was a decent kid. I hadn't been rebellious. But I was self-absorbed like a lot of kids were. I was into my sports. I was into, you know, all the stuff that a 16-year-old wants in his life. And I got this thought in my mind, when was the last time I told my dad that I loved him? When was the last time? And I made this bargain with God. I do not recommend this. I don't recommend that you make vows you don't keep. But I said, God, if you allow my dad to live, I will never take my folks for granted again. And I want to tell him those words. I love you, Dad. Now, we were a pretty loving family, but we weren't an overly verbal family. So it's kind of like, hey, I told you I loved you, and if I, let, if I change your mind, I'll let you know, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> well, my dad recovered. It's now September. He's not been back to work yet. He's back at home. I came home from a football practice. This is two months later. And I told my dad this story. And I said, Dad, I, I don't know why I've waited so long to tell you this story, but I love you. And I'll never take you and Mom for granted again. I've, I'm the emotional one. I, my dad was not an emotional guy. I've only seen him cry twice in my entire life. Four years earlier, when I was 12 and my sister got married, I saw a little, one little tear come down his eye, and the second tear I ever saw at, to that point was that day, as a solitary tear came down his cheek, and he said, 
I love you too, son. You say, that's a total hallmark moment. Turn it into a movie. Those, those of you who are cynical. Yeah, it was. But I got to tell you what, it was a defining moment because I think from that day forward, every holiday, every family gathering, we never left again that house without a love, a hug, a kiss, and saying, I love you. I love you. And I, every time I hung up the phone, I told my mom that. I told my dad that. It's influenced how I've parented my kids. They never got out of the door without a big squeeze, a big hug. I love you. Even over the most difficult things you could ever experience in your family. With a son who got, had to leave our home for four years, who was a prodigal beyond prodigals. He left knowing that he was loved, even though he could not live in that home. And so whatever you're facing today, Chad's going to come. We're going to sing, but I want to give you a chance to respond. Because the bottom line is, none of us are perfect. I know we beat ourselves up about what we should have or would have, could have done. Every grandparent in this room would tell you there were things they'd do differently. But thank goodness today, thank goodness today, that grace and mercy cover those parental mistakes. Students, we've had some fun today, but I got to tell you, do not delay. Take the time to grab your parents and hold them like you'll never let them go. And then don't ask for something afterwards, all right? Just hold them. No strings attached. Dads, when they lay their head on that pillow at night, I don't care if they're 16 and they're pushing you away. You stroke their hair. You whisper in their ears. And you tell them, I love you. But you have a heavenly father who loves you more. Moms, when you are pulling your hair out and you have three kids under the age of six and they are coloring on the walls and they are filling diapers with terrible substances, <laughs> you kiss those cheeks, you hold them tight and you begin to pray over them about God's destiny for their lives. Grandparents, you're not off the hooks either. Grandparents, and there's a lot of us first-time grandparents. You support your kids. You love your kids. And when you get a chance to hold your grandchild, to play ball with your grandchild, to go to a game, to visit them in Atlanta, to go be with those family members. Pray as much for your children as you pray for your grandkids. And if you have the relationship, they're going to come to you and say, Dad, how did you do that? 
and what every grandparent knows who's been out a while is over time your IQ went up 100% because your kids saw you as idiots when they were teenagers and now in your 30s and 40s and well your 50s and 60s you're brilliant you see this message is for everyone you have a heavenly father who knows your name he's that heavenly father he's that one who will nurture you when nothing else can nurture your soul heavenly father we thank you that you are the one who hears us who never leaves us that our calls of desperation never go unanswered and Lord I'm glad that you know my name and, and that I have that relationship with you and today if there's any one of you that do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior as your Heavenly Father and do not have a relationship with the living God, we would love to talk to you about healing the wounds of your past and God entering into relationship with you. Lord, that's our prayer. Thank you that we are the family of God. And even now as we join together for a meal and pray and we talk about some of the most exciting news that we've been waiting for for a long time. May you bring us together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Potluck, prayer, big announcement. You'll want to be in that room. We'll see you.